Last week, we reviewed our previous unit and we answered different questions about creation in the fall. And we're moving on to the next unit, unit three of our Answers Bible Curriculum, second edition. In our next unit, we're going to be focusing more on the fall, as well as two important events, which are fruits of the fall. And those are the Great Flood and the Rebellion at Babel. Those come much later, but they are related to the fall and its immediate effects. Today, we are talking about those immediate effects. Two weeks ago, we looked at how man fell into heinous sin according to Satan's crafty deception at the fall. But now, we're looking at the aftermath. In today's lesson, we're going to examine the text in three different parts, basically the rest of our passage, but we're going to take it up we're going to examine it in three different pieces. We'll first examine the initial confrontation between man and woman with God. Then we'll examine the curses that God pronounces. And then we'll examine the reaction of God and man to those curses. And as we go along, I think you'll see that much of what man experiences is either, or we feel the implications of that today, or we actually experience the same thing. So we'll have plenty of application. Let's pray below. Uh, let's pray though before we continue. The great God in heaven, I pray that you would open up this passage to us. Help me to be able to explain it well and accurately. And I pray, God, that we would all take in what is this dramatic, momentous, far-reaching event which you have so graciously recorded for us in the scripture. I pray that you bless this time in your word. Amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin examining the rest of our chapter with the initial confrontation with God. And so this is Genesis chapter 3, and we're starting just verses 8 to 13. Now we're picking up our reading right after man and woman have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes have been opened. They have seen that they are naked, and they have sown fig leaves for themselves as loin coverings. But let's read what happens next. So starting in verse 8, chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord, that is Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay, let's just start with this little section and observe. Note that in verse 8 of our passage, Adam and the woman heard the sound of God walking in the garden. This implies that God appeared to them in a visible and tangible form. They could actually hear him moving or walking through the garden. But notice in verse 9, the reaction of the man and his wife to this knowledge. They hide from the presence of God. Where do they hide? Among the trees of the garden. The trees of the garden that God himself created for them. 
Notice in verse 9, who calls out? We don't see man calling out to God, but what? We see God who calls out to man, and he asks, where are you? And notice how Adam responds in verse 10. He does not ignore God's call. He responds, but he doesn't say, I'm, I'm right here, or come out in hiding, go up to God and say, oh, there's, there's no use trying to hide from you. Here I am. No, instead, we hear an explanation from Adam why he's hiding. He says to God, I heard you walking in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was Adam afraid? Is it because he had sinned? Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He says he was afraid because he was naked. I'm getting the sense that Adam's trying to avoid mentioning something. This only brings more questions from God, though, in verse 11. God hears that Adam knows that he's naked, and he says, well, who told you that you were naked? Uh-oh, the jig is up, Adam. You've just admitted something that proves that something is out of order, so what are you going to do now? God asks Adam straight out, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Well, there's no more room to maneuver. It's time to come clean, Adam. But what does Adam do? Look at verse 12. He says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave from the tree and I ate. So does Adam admit his sin and take responsibility for his disobedience? No, he doesn't. What does he do instead? Yes, he will talk about that in just a second. He blames God. But, even, but with that, he also blames Eve. And Eve seems to be the, the primary focus in this statement. Eve made me do it. The woman whom you gave to me, it was the woman. It was not my fault. I was just doing my own thing in the garden, and she gave me the fruit. Yes, I did eat, but if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have. Now notice, as, a, as someone already answered, Adam specifically is the woman whom you gave to be with me. And God doesn't need to be reminded which woman Adam's talking about since there's only one woman on the earth at that time. So why does Adam include that statement? The woman whom you gave to be with me. And it can only be because Adam is also blaming God. It's not just the woman's fault. It's really, it's really God's fault. It's like Adam says to God, I did what you told me to, or did what you told me not to. It's true, but it's not my fault. The woman made me do it. And come to think of it, you're the one who gave me this woman. And if you hadn't given me the woman, the wouldn't have made me eat. The woman would, ha would not have made me eat. So really, God, this disobedience is your fault. By the way, notice how grammatically Adam's admission appears in his sentence, in his confession. The admission only appears as the last two tiny words of his statement. But look at all the explanation and qualification in the front. Adam, did you eat of the tree? Uh, the woman, uh, the one you gave to me, she gave to me, and I ate. It's basically reflected, reflecting what the Hebrew does. You also have this, this ton of front matter and then that tiny confession at the end. Notice God doesn't answer Adam's or doesn't respond to Adam right away, but turns to hear the woman's explanation. What is this you have done? And how does her response compare to Adam's? It's not that different. The woman also passes the blame. She says it's 
It's the serpent's fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's true, I did what you forbid, but it was because of the serpent. If it weren't for the serpent, I, I wouldn't have done it. Now let's take a step back now and interpret. Think about what man is displaying for the first time after the fall. For the first time in scripture, the first time in history, man becomes afraid of God. Man cannot bear to be in God's presence, but instead tries to hide from him. Man cannot take responsibility for his own evil, but instead blames others. And man even has the gall to blame God for his own failure. How can this be? This is very different than what we saw before. And consider how good God has been to them up to this point. God, as their creator, has only lavished them with gifts since the dawn of creation. He appointed man and woman as his underrulers, made them in his own glorious image. He gave them a very good world with no pain, no futility, no sin, planted for them a wonderful garden filled with a variety of delicious fruit, gave them precious companionship in their marriage relationship. He himself communed with them as their God and as their friend, and he warned them from the path that would destroy them. He has been very good. And it's been well pointed out by different theologians that from the beginning, God has shown himself to be a God of grace, of undeserved favor. You see, God is not simply a God of law who says, all right, we're starting out neutrally. Obey me and you'll experience good. Disobey me, you'll experience bad. Rather, what God does in creation is he pours out abundant blessings first and then says, consider who I am and consider what I've done. Now trust and obey me. We see this in creation and we'll see the same thing when it comes to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. It doesn't start Israel with just a neutral place. He actually starts them with undeserved favor. And then he calls them to obey. He's a God of grace. Now with such a God, how should man have reacted to his own tragic fall? Not run away from God. Run to God. Yeah, repent. You... Consider what they know about God. He's the source of all goodness. He's the source of all kindness and grace. Run to him. He'll know what to do. God, we're sorry that we've sinned against you in this heinous way. We have no excuse. Please have mercy on us and provide us a way to be reconciled to you. But that is not man's attitude, clearly, even from these first few verses. They do not treat God as their help and savior, but as their what? They treat God really as an enemy. God is the boogeyman out to get them. He's too holy and frightening to even get near. He's the real source of their problems. And the solution is not reconciliation, but escape or even elimination. Get rid of God and everything will be all right. How could they think this about God, considering how he's demonstrated himself to be towards them? And there's really only one explanation. How could they react this way? It's because they've had a radical change of heart. With that first sin, with the fall, man's heart has changed. Both man and woman 
had become hopelessly corrupted by evil. They've experienced spiritual death, a death of the heart. And therefore, a man now sees everything from a wicked, self-exalting worldview. He looks at God, and he should see the source of his hope and help and, and all good, but instead he sees an enemy to be avoided. This is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity, or of total inability, or of radical corruption. In the very first moments after the fall, we see man displaying this new heart towards God. We'll have much more to say about this biblical truth in the coming lessons, but notice it's already on display, even so shortly after the fall. Man has become radically corrupted by sin because of the fall. Instead, it's penetrated to his deepest character. By the way, why does God ask the questions that he does in this passage? It's not as if the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God doesn't know exactly what's happened and has to come and find out. So why does he ask, where are you and what have you done? Yeah, this is God giving this sinful pair an opportunity to repent, to confess, to come back to him, to admit what they've done and seek his help. Now consider how gracious God is and his approach to Adam and Eve. Think of how he might have come to them. As soon as they sinned, storm, fire, wrath, a booming voice from heaven saying, I know what you've done. I'm going to come get you. But that's not what God does. Instead, God comes walking slowly in the garden. He calls after them and he asks questions. Could God have been kinder or gentler in confronting sin, heinous rebellion against him? He could, and, and despite what they've done, he goes after them. But what is their reaction to this grace from God, this very gentle approach? It's to avoid God. It's to blame God. And don't we see the same in our world today and even in our own behavior? We not only do evil, but we do our best to hide and excuse our evil and even blame others. We see this all around us. Now, I'm not saying that outside factors and people don't affect us. They do. But the Bible makes clear that we are all responsible for our own evil thoughts, words, and actions, no matter what other people do or what circumstances affect us. So before we move on, do take a moment to consider yourself. Do you do the same thing with your sins as Adam and Eve do with theirs? Do you hide them? Do you blame others? Do you even blame God? And in response to your sin, do you treat God as the enemy to be avoided or overcome? Or do you run to him as your savior? He is the only help. Let's now examine the next section of our text, and that's the curses. Having conducted his investigation, graciously given opportunity for man and woman to repent, seeing that they will not, God now pronounces judgment. Let's now read verses 14 and 19. God says, Because you have done this, uh, and the 
Lord God said to the serpent, I'm sorry, include that line. And Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's observe the second section. In these verses we see curses pronounced on the serpent, then the woman, then the man. Notice that God starts with the serpent. It's interesting that he asks questions of the man and the woman, gives them opportunity to repent, but says nothing this way to the serpent. Doesn't give him an opportunity to explain himself or to repent. And notice the pronouncements, the four pronouncements that God makes to the serpent, verses 14 and 15. God says, you are cursed more than all animals. You will crawl from, from now on, on your belly and in the dust. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and the seed of the woman will crush your head and you shall only bruise his heel. I will come back to the significance of that in a moment. But after speaking to the serpent, God then addresses the woman in verse 16. A shorter section here. Notice the two pronouncements made to the woman. He says, God says, you will have greatly multiplied pain in having children. Now understanding by the term multiply in our translation, New American Standard Translation, it does not indicate that God is merely increasing the pain that was already present, already a part of childbirth or parenting. That comes with our word multiply, but actually the Hebrew is literally, I will make, I will greatly make great your pain. So there's no implication here, pain already having been. This is just a new pain that's going to be incredibly massive compared to the other pains in creation, in the fallen creation. So understand that about multiply, but also understand the word childbirth here is more literally translated conception or pregnancy. So God is saying, I'm going to more, I'm going to greatly increase, I'm going to greatly make great your pain in pregnancy or conception. And that's a little bit strange because there's not, really great pain associated with those two things compared to the, the rest of life. So likely this is figuratively describing the whole child rearing process. We're not just talking about labor here. Certainly we're not just talking about conception. Rather, God is saying that motherhood as a whole is going to become a great pain as a result of the fall. And can't many mothers testify to this? not just in the pain of labor, but all the sorrow and difficulty and frustration 
in trying to mold your children and seeing them behave a certain way or seeing certain things happen to them. There's great pain that comes with being a mother. And this is a result of the fall. But there's another announcement made to the woman. It says, your desire will be toward your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, what's that about? Well, we'll come back to that. And then finally, in verse 17, we had the pronouncements given to the man. And notice God backs up a step. He first specifically cites what was man's fault. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Now, the sin wasn't simply that he listened to his wife. It was that he followed her into sin. God reminds the man of man's exact responsibility. doesn't matter what your wife does. doesn't matter what she counsels you. You are to obey my command, not excuse it by saying your wife did or counseled you to do something. And therefore, God gives three pronouncements to man. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. You will now work hard and with pain to get food from the ground. And then you will die and return to dust. Now let's return to our interpretation now and see if we can answer some key, some key questions about this passage. First, did snakes crawl on their belly before the fall or only after? Well, apparently it was only after because the rest of the curses in this section, they describe new realities as a result of the fall. Therefore, when God says you will crawl on your belly, serpent, this apparently was a new thing. It's not something the serpent did before. Now, that might make us ask, well, then what did the snake look like before the fall? Did it have legs? Did it have wings? Something else? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us enough information to answer that question. It's possible that snakes actually didn't lose any appendages as a result of the fall, but they merely changed posture. Even if a snake travels on the ground, it could hold itself up as it travels. You can think of maybe some snakes today that whenever they're defending themselves, they, they back themselves up and, and, they, and their head rises into the air. Snakes don't usually travel like that, though. So it may be that though the snake's body didn't change, its way of travel did. The snake is now going to be, serpents are now going to be traveling right on the ground. With a face even on the ground. But we might wonder in response to that, well, oh, let me advance the slides here. Why, why punish the snake? We already noted in a previous lesson, the snake is just a means. It's an instrument, a tool of Satan. Snake doesn't even have a comprehension of itself or of sin or of the curse. So why punish the snake? Well, the answer is in what this punishment, what this curse will figuratively communicate. And we can get a good sense of this by considering a later Old Testament passage. In Micah 7.17, we hear an announcement from God about the future enemies of Israel. The context is that God has just declared how he's going to restore Israel, and he's going to deal with Israel's enemies. And then Micah 7.17 says this about Israel's enemies. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to Yahweh our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Now, do you hear what God's saying there in Micah? God's enemies, Israel's enemies, 
will one day have postures like the serpent. And consider how that posture is described in Micah. It is a posture of lowliness, of submission, of fear, and of defeat. Their faces, these enemies, are constantly in the dust. Now, this is instructive. This informs us as to why God curses the serpent. God curses the serpent after the fall, even though the animal cannot really comprehend its humiliation, because this is a symbol of Satan's own downfall. Satan's defeat. And it has to be, right? After Satan uses a tool in an effort to corrupt mankind, acquire glory for himself, and frustrate God, God turns the tool, Satan's very tool, into a symbol of Satan's own humiliation. God essentially says to Satan, do you see the posture of this snake? This will be your posture, and I want all the universe to know it. And this fits right in with the context of God's announcement about the serpent's head being crushed by one to come. So in this very first curse, God is making abundantly clear. Satan has accomplished no victory in the fall of man. Satan's doom is just as sure as it has ever been. And the very animal, the snake, that was used to precipitate the fall will now be a symbol of God's victory over Satan for the rest of the snake's existence. And this is still true today. When you see a snake traveling along the ground with its face in the dust, think of the truth communicated in that snake's posture. It's made clear for us in this curse. Now, God also says that he will place enmity between the woman and the snake and between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. What is that talking about? Well, at first, we might think that this is about people becoming afraid of snakes and snakes being afraid of humans. But this is true of many other animals. It would hardly be a unique curse to the snake. Or some people really like snakes. I don't know how they do, but they do. So the curse has to mean something else. We've already seen that the other curses on the serpent have to do with Satan. And while Satan does not procreate, he is said later in the scriptures to have seed, to have children. And who are the children of Satan or the devil? Those who do what Satan does, wicked ones, unbelievers. They are the children of the devil. So then God is promising here to the serpent and to man who listens to this curse that there are going to be two kinds of seed. There's going to be a group that belongs to Satan and is like him, and there's going to be a group that comes from Eve. And it's going to be different. But notice the relationship between these two groups. According to this verse, it's going to be enmity which is conflict, hostility. Now, which group of people would experience conflict with Satan's brood of wicked ones? Namely, the people who do not do as Satan does, the people who belong to God, the people who love righteousness, the people who are believers. So God's saying there's going to be enmity between a group to come that will be like Satan and a group to come that will not be like Satan, but will instead believe in me. Now notice, God says, God identifies where this enmity will come from. He says, I will put enmity between these groups, and between the woman, and between the serpent. And finally, note that the seed of the woman is said ultimately to deliver a mortal wound on the serpent himself, 
that's what the phrase bruise his head, bruise your head. That means that someone's been wounded in a way that they're going to die. It says the seed to come will do this to the serpent. while that seed will suffer only a minor wound in return, just a bruise on the heel. So what is God saying to Satan with these announcements? Well, first, God is saying that he will save the woman and preserve a godly line of humanity through her. And this line will oppose Satan and those who follow him. Moreover, from this godly line, a second promise, will come one who will ultimately defeat and destroy Satan. Who is that, according to the rest of Scripture? Why, that's Jesus. That's Israel's Messiah, son of God, son of man, born of a virgin, and therefore the seed of the woman, but not the seed of the man. What we're seeing here is actually God's triumphant sovereignty in salvation on full display. God promises the serpent the most utter defeat. He doesn't just have a posture of humiliation, but there's more. God says to Satan, essentially, you may think you have corrupted and destroyed mankind, that they now all belong to you, that they now all serve you. But let me tell you, I will cause the woman, the very one whom you deceive, and many from among her children to come back to me. They will be a seed apart from your seed. I will cause them to repent. They will then hate you and therefore be at odds with all of those who belong to you as your children. I will cause this to happen. You can do nothing to stop me, O Satan. In fact, one righteous descendant from the woman will not only wage war against you, he will lay the finishing blow. He is my son. He is the one who will come from the very race, humanity, that you thought that you had conquered and captured. You will be able to do nothing against him except give him a minor bruise. You will kill and crucify him. But he will rise triumphant from the grave to give life to all those who believe in him. This is your doom, O deceiver. Was this not the awesome power and victory of our great God and Savior on display? Now, of course, I've filled in some of the details. This is an announcement made in, in, in a bare outline compared to what we see in the rest of Scripture. But don't miss that right here in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, we have the first proclamation of the saving gospel of God in Scripture. Now, many more details will be filled in as, as you proceed in the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament. But catch this. From the beginning, our good God gave all sinners hope. One day, God promises I will provide you a savior and a deliverer from the serpent, from Satan, and from what he's done to you. And what should this encourage? This should encourage all men to return to God and believe his promises. This was true in the beginning, and it's true now. It extends to everyone who listens to this word today. Return to God. Believe his promises. He will deliver you. Now, what about the second part of what, is, of what God says to the woman? Moving on to the woman now. And as we talk through interpretation here, see, make sure the slide is where I want it to be. 
saw God brings great pain for women as they bring forth children. But what about this second part? Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. What is that all about? This is a somewhat puzzling verse. And there is some debate as to ex its exact meaning because the word desire here is very rare in scripture. It's only used three times. Yeah, once here, once in Genesis 4, and once in Song of Solomon chapter 7. What kind of desire are we talking about? Now, a key clue of interpretation, which I think does lead us to the way we ought to understand this statement about the woman, comes in the next chapter, Genesis 4. Turn over there for just a second. Genesis 4, verses 6 to 7, God says something to Cain. Context here is Cain is jealous over Abel's accepted sacrifice and upset that his own sacrifice was not accepted. Notice what verses 6 and 7 say. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you will do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it, or you must rule it. You notice how similar that sounds to the proclamation given to the woman in Genesis chapter 3. It's even more similar in the Hebrew, but you can see it reflected in the English. Now, in what sense does sin desire Cain? Is it a positive thing? Does it seek to love him, or does it seek his good? Now, clearly not. Sin wants to rule Cain, control him, destroy him. Therefore, God says to Cain, you must master the sin that wants you in a bad way. You must rule over it. Now, if we take this understanding to Genesis chapter 3, as I think we ought, because of how similar the phrasing is, and what God is pronouncing to woman in the second part of the curse to her, is that as a result of sin, the wife will now experience great marital strife. He says, you will, you a wife, you a woman, will desire to rule your husband, but he will rule over you. To say that another way, because of the fall, the woman will tend to desire to control her husband and be independent of him, while the man will tend to desire to be sinful in his rule, to dominate his wife and even abuse her. And isn't this something that we see today in every place, especially in our own country? On the one hand, you have the feminist movement that seeks to liberate women from being submissive to husbands and to men in general. But unfortunately, it just makes women more vulnerable to men than ever. On the other hand, men continue to abuse their wives and women in general. And this happens not just in America, but all around the world, from the most modern nations to the most backward tribal collections. See, just as the marriage paradigm was broken in the garden with Adam and Eve's sin, Eve taking the lead and leading her husband into evil and man acquiescing to her leadership in that evil. So that brokenness is going to be continually reflected now in marriage and the many misunderstandings, fights, domestic abuse cases, divorces, and even murders that come all around the world. Why would God curse marriage? Marriage was originally a gift, but the fall brought a curse on marriage, even on this good 
institution that God made. Now we might ask, why these curses? Why announce these curses to the woman? God could have cursed many things related to women. Moreover, there are things that God curses in the world that are affected by the fall in a negative way, besides what is highlighted to the woman here and even what's highlighted to the man. So why mention these two specific curses about raising children and the wife's relationship to her husband? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. It's because these represent the woman's primary sphere of life. The curse is going to fall, the announcement of the curse falls on her, her main sphere and her main source of fulfillment. The most relevant place to speak of a curse to the woman is with the home and family. And so that's what we see here. And we see the same thing with Adam and the curse that is announced to him. Let's now consider Adam. The curse on Adam hit his most relevant sphere. That is his work. We've already covered some information about this in the lesson on stewardship. But God's pronouncement on man is that man's work will now become hard, painful, toilsome, and futile. Now understand, these curses, they're not exclusive to the man, exclusive to the woman. The woman is going to experience the curse of, on work as well. And man will experience the curse on home and family as well. But God is emphasizing it according to the primary sphere of woman and man. Rather than satisfying himself in the food that God provided him, man will now have to work painfully and frustratingly for his food. He will now become a farmer dealing with thorns and weeds, plants that did not exist or did not exist in the extent that they, or in the way that they did before the fall as after the fall. These plants will now flourish in a world where God changes the watering system from an underground watering system to one that relies mostly on rain. And just as the pain of just as the pain of raising a family would be with a woman constantly all her days, so will the pain of man's work be with him all his days until he dies. He will toil until he dies. Man will return to the ground from which he was made. He will die, his wife will die, and their children will die. Thus, this is, it's at the fall where death enters the whole world. Even though animals did not sin, and even though the ground had no part in Adam's rebellion, all of it fell under the curse of death when its ruler was cursed. Did you catch that part of God's statement? Cursed is the ground because of you. Ground didn't do anything. And really all the earth was cursed, animals too, because of what the ruler of the earth did. And this is just what Romans says. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, that is, death entered the world through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Romans 8.20-22 speaks about the same concept in terms of futility. God says in Romans, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The way the world is is not the way it was originally created. 
it wasn't death before the fall. This is something that happened to creation. This was a, a subjection of creation because of man's sin. Now, these curses are severe. And we do indeed feel their effects every day. All of us experience the curse on work and the curse on the ground. All of us experience the curse on home and family. And all of us experience the curse of death. Unless Christ returns sooner, each one of you listening today will die. You will return to dust, just as God said to Adam. And what a tragic change in man's state. What a marring of God's wonderful creation design. Chapter 1, chapter 2, it's just so sweet, it's so great, it's so good. And then man sins against God, and this is the result. Now this is not an overreaction by God. This is the price of sin. This is what man in his evil chose for himself. God was not unjust in anything he decreed as a result of the fall. He showed himself to be holy as well as good. And as we've discussed already in previous lessons, these punishments were appropriate considering the severity of the, the offense that is rebelling against, rejecting God, and exalting self. And these curses will serve an important gospel purpose, just as they do today. When you experience the pain of life, the trouble of life, and the reminder of death, you are reminded of your need for redemption. And this is something I think all people realize deep down. And when they see the earth as it is, they know something's not right. Something's off. This is not the way the world was meant to be. Now, have you felt that? Have you noticed that in your experience of these curses? Man, when he witnesses this, he knows we need someone to set us free from all of this. Now, as bad as these curses are, there's still two other tragic results of the fall that we've not yet discussed, but which appear in our final section of the passage of the chapter. So let's now turn to our last section, Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. And let's read. So back in chapter 3. This is right after God finishes announcing the curses. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we'll talk about these, these verses only briefly, but notice a few items here. Notice that the immediate reaction to these curses by Adam is to name his wife. He names her Eve in verse 21. And the reason is given to us explicitly in the text. He says it's because she was the mother of all living. 
And that makes sense once we know a little bit about the, the name Eve. In Hebrew, Eve, the Eve would be pronounced Chewa. And that apparently is from the same root as the word Chai, which means life. Therefore, he calls her Eve. She's the mother of all the living. And you say, really, Adam, after all these curses, you're going to name your wife this, this really positive thing? Talk more about that in just a second. But do also notice in verse 22, we see God making clothes for Adam and Eve from animal skins. As I mentioned two lessons ago, this implies that God killed animals to clothe these humans. And this then would be the first physical death in creation. And not only does this measure, this really gracious measure of God from Adam to from him to Adam and Eve, not only does it meet their physical needs, but it also serves as the first picture of man's nakedness being covered by blameless sacrifice. Of course, that's a theme that's going to continue to be developed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Finally, notice how man is driven out of the garden with no ability to return, maintain access, God places a guard of cherubim, which is more than one of these great angelic beings, at the east of the garden. And he also places an ever-turning flaming sword. Now, I think we often assume that this is these swords are being carried by the cherubim, but it's written as if it's a separate entity. God places the cherubim, and then he places a sword, a sword that keeps waving and turning in every direction, specifically to pre prevent man from returning to the garden. Now let's ask a, a few final questions, uh, in, interpretation related. Why does Adam give such a hopeful name to Eve after hearing all the curses? Maybe you might think that he'd name his wife something like tragedy or she led us into sin or this is a terrible day. That's not what we see from Adam. Why does he give her such a hopeful name? I think it's because Adam realized how much of God's mercy was displayed even in the curse announcements. You see, even though God said that man would die because he ate the fruit, God did not immediately enact the sentence. It's true, man started to die physically as a result of the fall, and he would eventually die. But God also proclaimed through the curses that man would continue to live for a time. Adam, you will have to toil. You will have to get your bread from the ground. But when you do, you will sustain your life and the life of your family. Eve, you will have great pain in childbirth and in raising children. But you are going to have children. Life will continue. The human race will not be wiped out. It mercifully will continue. Thus, the name Eve is an expression of hope in God's promises, and it is a memorial to God's mercy despite man's terrible sin. I think it's very instructive that in what we might think are the worst announcements ever, Adam's response is actually a positive one, because he saw God's mercy even in the curses. But there still was punishment. There still was great, great loss. 
in the curses and what happened afterwards. And notice what man loses by being driven out of the garden. He has no more access to God's presence. He may not dwell with God anymore. And he also loses access to the tree of life, which, as we hear from God himself, is what grants eternal life. If he, Adam, were to eat of the tree, he would live forever. But God says, we cannot let him do that. And as this expulsion, then, does it not represent the two greatest problems that man faces? The greatest problem for man and woman and all people now on the earth is not the pain that comes with living on a cursed earth. It's not the conflict in relationships that we have with one another. It's not even temporal death. The greatest problem in question is how can we return to God? How can we experience fellowship with him again? And how can we receive eternal life? Now, more information to, in response to that question, in response to that problem, it will be unveiled as the scripture progresses. Today, we know in full what Adam and Eve didn't know in those days. And that is eternal life and intimate fellowship with God would indeed be restored by the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. For all those who repent of sin and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are not only granted eternal life and rescue from God's eternal wrath against sin, but they are granted to dwell with God, to behold the glory and the beauty and the good of the Lord in his presence forever. For all of you listening today, I pray that that is your eternal destiny. That is what you are marching toward. I pray that that is the hope you have with you all the time. You see, all of these terrible things that are the result of the fall, they will one day be reversed for those who have been joined to God's Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only reversed, but made immeasurably better than even what man knew originally. We don't have time to look at it now, but we see the description of the, the new heavens and the new earth and the end of the book of Revelation, and you see that better than anything Adam and Eve knew before. And that's the destiny. That's where those who know Christ are headed. Even during our sojourn on earth, however, the various curses pronounced on men and women in Genesis 3 are overturned through Christ. In Christ, the pain of bringing forth children is still felt, but it is overpowered by the hope and trust each Christian mother has in God. In Christ, there's still conflict in marriage, but both husband and wife work toward greater joy and unity together as they submit to God's original design for marriage. In Christ, there is still toil and trouble in work, but Christians can do their work heartily as unto the Lord, knowing that even though this world is passing away, even though our own lives are passing away, our work is not in vain because God will see and God will reward us for the work that is done for his sake. And in Christ, though every Christian must pass through the river of death, they do not need to be afraid, nor do their loved ones need to weep like those who have no hope, because 
the Christian knows where he's going, even in death. He's going to be with God. Christ redeems us. He redeems believers from the curse of the fall and the pain and suffering of life that must be in this cursed world is made into a refining blessing for the believer. Therefore, the Christian can testify, as Paul says, all things work to my good because of God. Now, I have to ask you, do you enjoy these blessings in Christ yourself? Do you feel how you have been redeemed from the curse in this life? And then in the life to come, you will experience the full redemption, better than anything Adam and, ever, Adam and Eve ever knew. Do you experience that? Or do you only feel the weight, the curse, the crushing weight of the curse, the punishment that makes life sorrowful and that gives a fearful expectation of what is to come? I pray that it's the former. If only you would know and follow Christ and you would know not only the blessing that God gives in this life, but you will enjoy the ultimate blessing when this life and this world are over. As you can see, there is much to say, much to see and to say about God and about our relationship to him based on this chapter. What a foundational text. This is critical history. And praise God that he gave it to us. This makes sense out of the great suffering and evil we see in the world. But it also points us, just as it was originally meant to point Adam and Eve and the people of Israel to their need for redemption in God through his promised Savior. I look forward to exploring with you as we continue our study how God would reveal more and more about that Savior that was announced even here in chapter 3. That takes us to the end of our lesson. Any questions about what you've heard today? Yes, Magda. Mm. Okay, yeah, good question, Magda. I'll restate your question briefly. You mentioned verse 22 where it says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And your question is, was sin actually taking of the fruit, or was it manifest in Eve's desire to just take the fruit? And I think I would say that sin occurred before she took the fruit. It was indeed the desire that beyond merely wanting what God forbid, it was an expression of autonomy apart from God. God says there's a certain thing that's good. I'm going to decide what's good. God says I should submit to him. I'm going to do my own thing. And this is partly why the heinous, or we see the heinousness of, of 
Eve's rebellion. But why does God specifically judge them for the fruit? And this is something I said in one of the previous lessons. I believe it's because God always focuses on deeds as, as the evidence that brings judgment. God does see the heart and he will judge us according to what is in our hearts, but he always points to the deeds because the deeds show what's in our heart. And I brought up the example before of Abraham when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. God stops him at the last minute and he says, do not harm the child for now I know that you fear God and you will and you did not withhold your own beloved son from me. Now God knew that before he even tested Abraham, but he wanted that deed to be manifest that he could point to it. And so he could point us to it as to what real faith produces. Then it will be the same thing in the final judgment. What does the New Testament say repeatedly about the, the judgment, the final judgment to come? We are judged according to our deeds. Of course, that doesn't mean that we can just focus on the externals. Your deeds will not be acceptable to God unless you have the right heart. But yeah, I think I would agree with you in your suggestion that the fall actually took place, takes place in the coveting of the heart, but it's manifest in the taking of the fruit. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, Josiah. Hmm. Hmm. Is that a question or is that just a comment? Okay, yeah. I, I think it's a good observation. You do see, in a sense, the problem of evil articulated by Adam here when he says, it's the woman that you gave me. God, you're the one who's responsible for sin. So I don't deserve to be punished. And, to, to restate the problem of evil uh, more formally, how can a good God allow sin or, or ordain sin? It must be either that God is not all powerful or man is not responsible for his sin. But as you noted, Josiah, James says, you can't do that. I'm sorry, if you don't understand, God's ways are above yours and above ours. He is able to, he has morally sufficient reasons good and sufficient reasons for causing all things to pass as they have, but that never absolves man of his responsibility before God. Adam, you are responsible for your evil and I am just to punish you. And so it is with all men who commit evil. So yeah, I think you're already seeing comment on the problem of evil here in Genesis 3. That's good. That's true. If you have other questions based on this passage, there are certain issues I didn't bring up, didn't get to talk about, so if you have other questions about things related to this passage, please email me. I would love to try and deal with those questions as best I can. But that's it for this week. Next week, we see one of the first effects, one of the first tangible effects of the fall in, in terms of man's new heart, man's fallen heart. It's the second, the second great tragedy in the history of man, the first murder. We're talking about Cain and Abel next week. Now let's close in prayer. Our great God, this, this passage, it reveals to us one of the worst happenings to ever take place, the rebellion and all the consequences of the fall that it brought. Well, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible happening, God. And so much pain and evil 
and futility has been the result. But this is what we did. This is our this is our wages of sin. And it even has eternal implications, God. You cannot be blamed for this. This was this was our responsibility. And yet, God, in spite of what we did, in spite of what our first representative did, you responded in grace. You responded in mercy. Even in wrath, even in justice, you were gracious. And you sought out the man, just as you do today. Lord, you are calling for all men to repent. And that you promise that anyone who repents, anyone who humbles himself, comes before you and seeks your salvation and your mercy, you will receive them. It's because you do not change. You are the gracious, saving God today, just as you were in the beginning. And we praise you for that, God. As terrible as this passage is for what it reports, how wonderful it is, God, for how it displays your grace and kindness. Lord, you are holy, and we need your mercy to be reconciled to you. We need Jesus Christ, but we thank you for providing that way and promising from the beginning that you would do that. I pray that those listening today would revel more in your salvation as a result of this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I'll see you again next week.